Good morning, Atlanta Christian Church. I am Alicia Marshall. I am not normally the person up here, but I am so excited to get to share with you this morning about this beautiful text that Kendra just read. If you don't know me, something important to know about me is that I am the epitome of a rule follower. I love rules. I know that is not a popular uh, stance, but I really like them. I like expectations, and I like going in order of things. And so when it comes to reading anything, I am honestly a little bit judgy about anyone that is going to skip to the end before they have read the whole thing. It like stresses me out to the point that I even, as I'm reading, I like cover the bottom of the page with my hand so that my eyes don't accidentally scan down and see something before you're supposed to see that. I feel like it spoils it. And there might be like a dash of undiagnosed OCD in there too that I'm like, I have to follow the rules. This is even true on like a Netflix, like the summary statement. I'm like, oh nope, I can't let my eyes read that. It might, like, why would I even watch it? If I see the plot points, I am a rule follower. But we're gonna break the rules a little bit today. The text that Kendra just read invites us to do just that, to skip to the end of the narrative. And I think this is an This is a beautiful exception to the rule that rather than spoil our experience of living, it offers us a vital hope that we need to walk through. Now, Derek asked me to preach this week, and when he gave me the text, I went through a roller coaster of emotions when I read the email because I don't read ahead like we've established. And so I saw Revelation. And I was like, are you kidding me, Derek? Are you gonna have me talk about dragons and lakes of fire? And I was like, I'm out. I don't wanna read that. But then I saw that it was chapter 21 and I breathed a sigh of relief because this is where it gets really, really good. This is the end of the story. Uh, I met with a student regularly. I am a campus minister at Emory University along with my husband. And one of the students I met with this semester was like all into the book of Revelation. And I didn't totally understand because for most people, it's a pretty intimidating book. But she was like all into all the imagery and um, trying to dissect all of it. And I had a baby. And so I left and didn't get to finish those conversations with her. And I talked to her yesterday and I was like, hey, I'm talking about Revelation tomorrow. And she's like, I quit. I like didn't finish reading it. And I, (laughs) I was like, well, I'm reading about the end. And she's like, I didn't get to that part. And I was like, oh man. So don't do that. If you're gonna read the book of Revelation, start here and then work your way backwards because this is the whole point. It's where the whole story is headed. If like this student or like most of us, you've avoided the book of Revelation your whole life, that's okay. Um, I'm gonna give you a quick orientation. Uh, Revelation, it is important that it's just one. If you wanna leave this place, you can now be smug like all the seminarians in the room that judge you if you say revelations, it's just one. So this one revelation contains the writings of John. There's no real consensus which John it is, but um, he is recording the visions given to him while on the island of Patmos. These are considered apocalyptic writings, hence the dragons and lakes of fire and all that that kind of stuff. Um, And it's rich with imagery and symbols that, as our friends at the Bible Project say, reveal a heavenly perspective on history in light of its final outcome. 
Now, um, I don't officially have a seminary degree, but I did learn that Revelation is just one because I went to Bible college, and one of the courses I took in Bible college was called Resurrection Narratives, because those are the kind of classes you take at Bible college. And sitting in that class, it blew my mind as I began to challenge most of what I pictured about the answer to that age-old question, what happens when you die? We have a five-year-old, his name is Levi, and he has started asking these kinds of questions, the what happens when you die questions, and they're really hard to navigate. Like, this is a whole new stage of parenting that I was not ready for. Um, and these always happen in the car for some reason, which I'm grateful for. It's like after carpool, he's just thinking through these deep existential questions, and he'll just like spit out, what, what happens when I die, mom? And I'm like, uh, how do I, how do I convey this to a five-year-old? It's really hard. And so I'll try and think and come up with some like response. And fortunately it doesn't last very long. And then he's like, eh, can we just listen to, we don't talk about Bruno. And then we keep going. But every now and then he'll just spit out one of these things. And it, it's a hard thing to think through, even for us as grown humans, not just five-year-olds. Like these are questions that we wrestle with. And this is what this text is inviting us to lean into today. Um, I don't know about you, but I grew up in an I'll fly away singing kind of faith, uh, left behind reading kind of faith. These were the theological um, ideas surrounding what I thought of happens when you die. But here in this text, John gives us a very different picture of heaven or of eternity, Rather than us escaping the earth, getting whisked up to heaven, the I'll fly away, uh, we, we see here a picture rather of God descending, of coming down to be with us. Over Lent, the season right before Easter, I read through Henry Nouwen's Show Me the Way, um, which was a daily reflection um, leading up to Lent. Derek, it was one of your resources. If you wanna know somebody actually reads those, thanks. I read it, um, and he kept talking about this idea of how Jesus was foreshadowing this descending way. Though Christ was king, he descended from his throne. He put on flesh for some 30-odd years to dwell with us, dwelling with us. That's really profound. And even in his time on earth, he spent time unexpectedly, not with the royals or those high in society, but with the lowly, with the less than, the broken, and the marginalized. And it's this idea, this descending way, that is central to this text picture of eternity. It doesn't start by describing the mansions or the streets of gold. It gets into some of that imagery in the next couple chapters, but rather it focuses on the central and most profound idea that God would choose to descend and dwell with us here. Now, whether we realize it or not, this is what we pray for each week before communion in this church. We don't pray the words, help us endure long enough for us to come to your kingdom far, far away from this mess of the earth, and then you can burn it all down. Rather, we pray, thy kingdom come here among us where we are. We believe that God is choosing this place as his eternal kingdom. And the separation that Jesus' work on the cross began to eliminate will finally be completely removed. We will be with God for eternity. 
And the text says, uh, the one on the throne says, I am making all things new. Those beautiful, beautiful words. I am making all things new. Now, if you recall some things that have been going on in our world the last two years, you might um, remember there was a virus um, that required a lot of us to stay at home, to stay inside, away from people. And I am not on Twitter and social media very much, but my husband um, kept showing me these memes that people were making called Nature is Healing. And I don't, does anybody remember these things? Cool, baby Jeff only. Um, But... It started with this like, oh, because everybody is like inside all the time, the dolphins are back in the canal, like, I don't know. And then there was like some fact checking and I don't know if that's really true. But then it turned a whole other corner about like joking memes of nature is healing. And my favorite that I found as I was like looking through this was the one of the lime scooter being in the river. That it was like, nature is healing. We are actually the virus. Nature is healing. And there are all these kinds. You can look them up after church if you want, or now if you get bored. Um, But this idea, jokes aside, nature is healing, is what is happening here in this text. It is giving us, it's giving away the ending, the trajectory for nature, for ourselves, for our relationships, all of it is healing, is being made new. And we are given a little bit more about what this kingdom will look like. These beautiful, powerful, and comforting words. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And then in verse six, it says, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Just sit in that for a second. I'm gonna read those words one more time because they're so beautiful. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. It is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. For me, I get to take a deep breath. I just did it (laughs) as I read those words. It gives me confidence that I know there is a plan and an ending, that there's a direction all of this is headed. And the words, it is done, for me are a beautiful echo of Christ's own words on the cross, it is finished. These two phrases serve as bookends to the work of redemption and renewal of all things. We rejoice for Christ is seated on the throne making all things new. And this picture is not a maybe. It's not something we cross our fingers and hope happens. This is rather a promised future. We can hang our hats on this. It is the direction of all humanity and all creation. And I think it's important to remember that these aren't just rosy words that are written without weight, but rather they come after 20 chapters of describing a conquering empire, of requiring resistance required in the midst of that conquering, of suffering, of battle. There's a weight, just as there's a weight as we read them today. I am confident that there's no one in this room that is a stranger to suffering, to pain, to tears or to death. And maybe today you just need to be reminded that this is not where the story ends. As Derek so often says, the worst thing is not the last thing. 
As I was reflecting about this text, um, I realized that the last time I had the opportunity to preach for this church, um, everything looked very different. I um, was actually recording a sermon from my bedroom. Um, I had books stacked up and a phone on top, and I pushed record because it was in spring of 2020 on Palm Sunday, and it was very, very different. Um, What most of you did not know, as you might have watched that recorded sermon, was that I had just found out I was pregnant, and it was like this secret that I was like, ooh, I wonder if anybody else has ever preached pregnant here before. Like, that's kind of cool. And my husband and I were just so full of joy as we were anticipating this new life and growing our family. Um, And unfortunately, that joy was soon turned to grieving as we lost that child. And it was very difficult. And it was honestly the start of a very difficult 12 months where we um, in total lost three children back to back. And we were just stricken with grief and mourning and tears. And so as I read these words, I know intimately what this feels like, as I would imagine each of you do in your various aspects as you are thinking through your own experiences with these. After one of our losses, my counselor said words that have just been playing in my head over and over again as I have been reading this text this week. I was sharing how in my grief, I didn't feel particularly distant from God, but that I also didn't feel like I had much to contribute to the relationship. I I couldn't give anything. And she said, sometimes our tears are the only prayers that we can give. And that just really struck me. And I think there's been um, several times in my life and in the lives of people close to me where that has been the case. And I think God welcomes that. I think he is perfectly okay with that. He understands tears and loss intimately. Um, The two two-word verse that everybody loves to memorize because it's so easy, Jesus wept, are so powerful as we see the God of the universe who put on flesh weeping over the loss of a dear, dear friend. But John tells us today that one day there will no longer be a need for tears or for prayers for that matter, because we will be forever dwelling with God. There will no longer be any separation, no more tears, no more separation. We are still in the midst of the Easter season here as we are following the church calendar, and it feels so appropriate with this particular passage because it's Christ's resurrection that has set all of this in motion. When he rose from the dead on the third day, he began the process of resurrection of all things, the process of making all things new. We know that these words have obviously not been completely fulfilled, but I think that we do get glimpses if we pay attention. We are living in what theologian N.T. Wright calls in between the already and the not yet Jesus has already begun the process of resurrection, of making all things new, but it is not yet fully accomplished. In this time of the in-between, we are gonna continue to pray, thy kingdom come. Some weeks, it may be a passing phrase that you don't really think that much about, and then you come down this aisle and take communion. But other weeks, it may be a plea from the depths of your being because you are exhausted and you long for the end of pain and tears and suffering that you see so prevalent in the world around you. 
I think that as we pray these words, it's also an invitation to us to be a part of what God is doing, of making all things new. Maybe it causes us to look at the world and rather than only honing in on the suffering and the pain, maybe it challenges us to see the glimpses of heaven as it crashes down to earth. Maybe we're more inclined towards healing in our own lives, in our relationships with the earth and with one another. We may begin to live as people of new heaven and new earth, even while the transition is still in place. And it is in that living hope that I hope you leave this room today, that holy anticipation, if you will. I love that John uses the imagery of a bride for new heaven and new earth. I've been to my share of weddings. My last one was actually in this room and I got to have a bird's eye view from the stage as the bride walked down the aisle. Congratulations, Aaron and Erica, yay. Um, But you know what I mean if you've been to a wedding. There's a shift in the room that happens. The music changes, everyone stands. You can like hear it as there's this whoosh of standing and people turn towards the back and everybody gets out their phones because they think they can take a better picture than the photographer. But there's this anticipation that happens as the bride is about to come. And it is in that anticipation that I hope to be our posture as resurrection people. May we anticipate what is to come and also be a part of its arrival. May we continue to pray thy kingdom come and never forget that the Lord we serve is making all things new. Thank